0: Welcome to this week's podcast, at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. We're in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. We've been slowly kind of working our way through uh, the book of Ephesians, trying to understand this theological foundation that Paul lays for the Ephesian church. And some of the major themes that we've seen in the book of Ephesians have to do really with the triune God, the sovereignty of God, and knowing the God we worship. So the Apostle Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know their God. He wants them to know the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in bringing them to salvation. One of the other themes we've seen in Ephesians is this idea that we have been dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live, but by God's grace, through the work of Jesus Christ, we've been made alive with Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ, the Gentile and the Jew are reconciled. Through faith in Christ, God and man are reconciled. And so Ephesians chapters one through three lay a theological foundation for the church so that we know the God we worship, theology for doxology, okay, theology so that we can worship our God, so that we know the God we worship. And then as we get into Ephesians 4 through 6, that's the other half, the other section of Ephesians, that deals more in the practical, the praxis. How do we live the Christian life on the basis of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ? So we're going to be in Ephesians 3, uh, like I said this, this morning, verses 1 through through 13. We'll read the passage in just a few moments, um, but I wanted to share that one Christmas when I was in my mid-20s, maybe about 25 years old or so, um, Amy and I had already been married for a few years. We had a couple of kids, um, mid-20s. My family received a, a very unusual Christmas card that year. Well, I guess the, the card itself was ordinary enough. It was the origins of of this particular Christmas card that were a bit uh, enigmatic, you could say. There was no note with the card. It contained only a photo of a young couple and four children. Now, I had no idea what I was looking at. Um, I thought it had to be some sort of mistake, maybe misdirected mail or something like that, but that wasn't it. Uh, The name and the address on the envelope had clearly been written with intentionality. The card was meant uh, for me. Uh, Besides, there was kind of an odd familiarity to the people in the photo, almost as if it had been sent by some distant relatives or or something. And I remember being a bit confused by this card, even perplexed, you could say. It was a strange card, and I realized I was not going to solve this problem simply by staring at the card. Now, one thing I've learned in life is, usually, I can solve a lot of problems if I think about them long enough, if I stare at them long enough, if I watch a few YouTube videos, I can figure things out. This was not the case in this uh, situation. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll, I'll investigate. Maybe I'll go to my parents and ask them if they know something about this this family in this car. Maybe it is a distant relative. Now, before saying any more about the card, I think it's important to note that living in mystery is not a comfortable thing, generally. We don't like to live with mystery. Humans naturally want information, right? We we don't like to live in a knowledge vacuum. Because when we lack relevant facts, we become tempted to speculate, right? We start telling ourselves stories, we start to theorize, we can, we can very easily create interpretive schemas that, that, that satisfy our natural yearning for the security of understanding the world around us. That's just where we go. There's something satisfying and comforting about putting all the missing pieces into place. Alright, putting the puzzle together. See, when I see a puzzle, I see chaos something that needs to be cleaned up, something that needs to be organized. So, I went to my parents with the mystery of the enigmatic photo, and a whole lot of pieces suddenly fell into place. You see, it turned out that the family in the photo was that of my oldest sister, a half-sister that I had never met and never knew existed. You can imagine the shock of, in your mid-twenties, finding out your family looks a little different than what you had grown up uh, thinking. New facts gave me a fuller picture of the past. These new facts gave me a better understanding of the present in which I was living. The pieces of the puzzle fell into place. My world started to take a little different shape at that point. New questions naturally formed in my mind relationships changed a little bit, maybe were augmented or or adjusted a little bit. The structure of my family was suddenly modified in some significant ways. Now in a similar way, the unveiling of mystery is something we see in scripture. and We're going to see that here in Ephesians chapter 3. Realities concerning God's Children and the salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles, these things had been shrouded in mystery until the day God sent his son into the world. See, the fullness of God's plan was cloaked in this kind of obscurity until the time was right and God made known the glorious detail of his redemptive plan for his people, both Jew and Gentile. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would guide us in this time of study in your word that you would lead us in the truth of what you have revealed, that we would come to understand the mystery of the gospel and our part in redemption, our part in salvation. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one thing that we need to note here is that Ephesians chapter... 3 verses 1 through 13 is parenthetical, okay? It's essentially a a, a parenthesis. Paul goes off on a rabbit trail, and he doesn't come back to his main point until verse 14. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, take a look at verse 1 of chapter 3, and compare to verse 14. See, Paul is about to pray for the Christians in Ephesus, But before he does, he is led by the Holy Spirit to elaborate on the beauty and the wonder of the mystery of the gospel revealed through the prophets and the apostles. This is for the salvation of both Jew and Gentile. Now, you realize Paul has already explained the gospel. He's already told us of the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's almost as if he's saying here, I need to tell you one more time. I need to tell you just one more time. Know what Christ has done for you. So Paul's parenthetical remarks here center on the idea of this particular mystery that has been revealed by God. Okay, And the word mysterion in Greek refers here to the counsel of God that was once hidden but is now made known. In fact, mystery in the New Testament has really kind of the opposite meaning of what you'd expect it to mean. You see, when we talk about mysteries, we're generally thinking about a problem that has an unknown solution. That's how we generally understand mystery. We picture Sherlock Holmes with his magnifying glass, following footprints or or that sort of thing, trying to solve a problem. But in the New Testament, a mystery is not something that's hidden, okay? A mystery is something that has been plainly revealed and is knowable based on the person and work of Jesus Christ, So here the mystery is that God's grace in Christ has brought reconciliation between God and man so that in faith we might approach God with freedom and confidence, with boldness. We are no longer children of wrath, as we saw in chapter 2. We are no longer children of wrath. We are adopted sons and daughters of the Father. So I want to examine here how this mystery kind of works itself out in in Ephesians 3. And the first thing to note concerns how God communicates the mystery with his people. Essentially, the mystery has been revealed by the Spirit. And if you look at verse 5, we see that the mystery has come down to the apostles and the prophets, who in turn preach the mystery to the church. In verse 10, "...who in turn declare the mystery or make known the mystery to the spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." So the mystery kinda finds its way through God's creation, starting with the apostles and prophets to the church then to the world from there. So God structures the announcement of the mystery in such a way as to preserve the truth of the mystery and to really to maximize the efficacy of this proclamation. And it's important to note in verse five in particular that Paul makes a distinction between the people of his generation and people of previous generations. See, the prophets and the apostles to whom Paul refers here are contemporaries of Paul. He's talking about first century, okay? People whose eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit and who have received the revelation of God about his redemptive plan. Paul was a recipient of this. You remember the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus. He was struck with the glory of God. He had a conversation with Jesus Christ. His eyes were opened to things he had never seen before and could not imagine. I think another very good example of how we see the mystery uh, unveiled in Scripture comes in Acts chapters 1 and 2. We're not going to examine that text thoroughly this morning. I would encourage you to read it if you have some time this week to to ponder uh, Acts chapter 1 and 2. But in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we see the unveiling of the mystery to these early Christians. You had about 120 uh, men and women who had been followers, disciples of Jesus Christ, and they're gathered together waiting in anticipation for what God is going to do next. Jesus has been raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and here these believers are, are waiting. What do we do? What's next? There's confusion, okay? They're, they're, they're devoted to prayer, so they're spending their time in prayer, waiting for God to show up and do something, but it's still not clear to them what to do. But then when we get into chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit comes on those believers, and their world is suddenly transformed. Their eyes are opened. Suddenly, Peter, and you know Peter, the one who just couldn't quite seem to get it right. Remember all of the stupid things that Peter says and does throughout the Gospels? Suddenly, Peter is declaring the wonders of God. It clicks, it makes sense. The Holy Spirit comes on him, and suddenly the whole picture makes sense. The mystery is revealed. You see how that happens in the book of Acts? That's what what Paul's talking about here. Something that was once hidden, something that was confusing, unknown, that is now revealed. Now please understand that just because the mystery was not made known until the coming of Christ, this doesn't mean that there was no salvation prior to the coming of Christ, okay? Abraham and his descendants were justified on the basis of their faith in the promise. Genesis 15:6 says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, Romans chapter 4 talks about this as well. Okay? So the cross is still at the center of all salvation. See, today we're justified by faith in the historical realities of what God has done. The historically actualized fulfillment of the promise, the cross. So just as the cross has kind of a proactive effect on us today, those who live after the cross, so also the cross had a a retroactive effect on those who lived before the advent of Christ. In other words, all instances of salvation, past, present, and future, are contingent on the cross. Does that make sense? See, Abraham was saved by faith in things that he did not fully grasp and maybe didn't fully anticipate, But the signs were there. Glimpses of the cross were present in God's call to Abraham to offer his his one and only son. We see that pointing us to the reality of the cross. Glimpses of the cross were seen in, in God's promise to bless the Gentile nations. See, all this stuff was already showing up in the Old Testament. Glimpses of the cross were given to the prophets, but until Christ came, in his fullness, the image was kind of blurred, kind of muted, in a sense. Now, imagine, imagine a, a scenario, if you will. Imagine you're in an art gallery, viewing a painting. Now, maybe you don't want to be in an art gallery, viewing a painting, but just bear with me for a moment. Imagine you are in uh, maybe the art museum here in Denver, and you're looking at a painting. Now, if you stand too close to that painting with your nose touching the canvas, you're not going to see things very clearly, are you? You may see some muted colors and shapes in in your periphery, but you're not going to grasp the fullness of what's going on in that image. On the other hand, if you stand too far away, the image is going to be this kind of amorphous, unrecognizable splotch, right? A, A kind of nebulous excrescence, on the wall, in the distance, that sort of thing. There's an ideal distance for optimal observation of that piece of artwork, right? And in a similar way, God's revelation to the prophets of old gave the people some kind of big picture glimpses of his plan, and he gave them a few close-up snapshots, okay? So people were seeing some of the stuff, but it was... Christ who brought the whole thing into focus. It was Christ who optimized our understanding of God's full plan. So Christ serves to fulfill and complete the revelation of God. Romans, or sorry, actually Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 talks about this. In the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets at various times in many ways. But in these days, he has chosen to to, speak to us through Christ. And Christ is the one who fills out the picture, Right? So, to recap, Ephesians 3 1 through 13 tells us something of the recipients of the mystery the apostles, the prophets, the church, and then those who received the declaration of of the gospel. But the second thing worth noting here is how the mystery became good news for all people. The Gentiles had been included in the promise, they became recipients of the covenant. Now, I doubt that this seems shocking to anyone here today. We are all proof, living proof, that God's redemptive plan has extended to the world. What stands out in this text, I think, is really more the then-now contrast that we see in the passage. You see, verse 9 tells us that God kept his plan hidden for ages past. So the problem is not that that God shows mercy. That seems to make sense, The question is when God chooses to show that mercy, to whom he chooses to show that mercy. Now, a natural question that arises from the text is that if God's intent was to save the Gentiles, why did it take him so long to get around to it? Why centuries of people living in darkness, living in ignorance, right? If God's desire was to save the nations, why didn't he do it more quickly? instead of leaving people to die in their sin and ignorance. Put another way, if God's plan involves inclusion and reconciliation, why have so many been excluded? It's a natural question, I think, that emerges from the the study of this passage. Now, I want to attempt an answer to this rooted in, again, in theology of the book of Ephesians. In other words, I think these questions can be answered on the basis of what we have learned about the character of God, the nature of God, and the human condition in the book of Ephesians. So first, note that people are not condemned to hell and separated from God because they never heard about Jesus, Okay. People are not in hell because they never heard about Jesus. People are separated from God and condemned because they are sinners. That is what we have read in Ephesians chapter 2. We're born dead in our transgressions and sins. In other words, there has never been and never will be anyone in hell because of ignorance of Jesus Christ. People are condemned because of their sin nature. This is what separates them from their God. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. So God would be perfectly within the scope of his justice, perfectly within the scope of his holiness to condemn each and every one of us. It is by grace that we are saved. It is by God's love and his compassion that we are saved. So keep that in mind as you think about this this issue. Moreover, God in his sovereignty chose to reveal his redemptive plan progressively through the prophets. He chose in his sovereignty to fulfill that plan in Jesus Christ. He chose in his sovereignty the proclamation of the gospel by the church to the nations as the ordinary means by which to bring people into his kingdom. Okay? Okay? So understand that the salvation of the nations here is not a logical or metaphysical necessity. And what I mean by that is God didn't have to do things a certain way. It falls within his divine prerogatives to save people in a way that brings ultimate glory to him and in a way that kind of fits within the the order that he's created. Okay, God doesn't reveal in great detail why things happen the way they happen, but God does reveal that in his good pleasure, he chose to bring redemption and glorification out of the fall according to his perfect wisdom. Okay, go back to Ephesians chapter one. This is talking about the sovereignty of God. According to his good pleasure, he has chosen to act in a way that brings ultimate glory to him. Furthermore, furthermore, Historically, God in his mercy has, in fact, extended his salvation to unlikely recipients of grace. Those whom God's people saw as idolatrous heathens outside of the the nation of Israel, some of those people were provided encounters with the God of Israel. They were given opportunity to be redeemed. Uh, What comes to mind are people like, like Ruth, the Moabite. You remember that story. She gave up her people and followed her mother-in-law back to Israel after the, the, the death of her husband. She said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She was brought into the nation of Israel, this pagan woman. She was redeemed. And we read that she became the, the, the great-grandmother of, of King David. Right? She became part of God's covenant people. I think of Rahab, the, the, the Canaanite. She was a prostitute. She belonged to these wicked people, the people of Jericho. And you know the story that God told his people to eradicate that city. They were so wicked, so steeped in evil, that even the livestock had to be destroyed. They were eradicated, yet God spared Rahab. and We read in in Hebrews chapter 11 that she was an example of faith. There are other examples in the Old Testament of people outside of the nation of Israel being shown the grace of God. People like, um, like Naaman, right? Naaman, the, the, the general of the Syrian army who was afflicted with leprosy. And he was given an opportunity to have an encounter with the God of Israel. He met a prophet who, who told him to go bathe in the Jordan River, and he was healed of his leprosy. I think of King Nebuchadnezzar. A pagan king of of the wicked people of of Babylon and yet God humbled him and at the end of his life he turns his face to heaven and declares the wonders of God and submits to God. There are many examples like this in the Old Testament and I don't know if all of these people were saved or would be saved. Um, We don't know uh, all the detail of this but we do know that God's mercy extended to people outside of Israel to the praise of his glorious grace. Finally, because of our concern for the lost, we can sometimes tend toward views of redemption that extend beyond the witness of Scripture. And I want to urge us to be very cautious with that. Whenever you step outside of the realm of what Scripture has revealed, be very careful. Um, It's tempting to think that God must offer redemption to all people even if they're not part of his elect people who profess faith in Christ. And I understand, and I I sympathize with this compassion for the lost, but understand that misinformed compassion can lead to speculations that are foreign to what Scripture tells us about God's redemptive plan. For example, I'm worried about this false doctrine of religious inclusivism that we can very easily fall into which says that many God-fearing people who stand outside of the Christian faith will be saved on the basis of their natural goodness. Again, I caution us, be very careful with these ideas, okay? Scripture is very clear on where salvation comes from. Faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. I'm worried about the doctrine of religious universalism. This is another thing that seeps into the church very easily, and it teaches that all people will ultimately be saved either in this life or the next, thus putting a, a lopsided emphasis on the love of God while forsaking the holiness and justice of God in matters of salvation. Again, I caution you with these ideas, okay? Be careful with this stuff. Anything that stands outside of the, the witness of scripture, We don't want to get into speculative theology on God's plan of redemption. We want to stick with what Scripture has revealed, in spite of the fact that these are hard passages at times. Why did God do it the way he did it? But we stick with what we know. We stick with the clearest and most natural reading of Scripture interpreted in its linguistic, cultural, historical context. That is the way we want to go with this. So keep in mind that the case uh, Paul is is trying to build here, I think the, the, the case he's trying to make centers on this mystery that salvation is really for all people. It's for all people, but through the proclamation by the church of the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So we want to stick with what Scripture tells us here. The mystery is good news for all people, Faith alone, in Christ alone, grace alone, okay? And the church is tasked with this proclamation. So we need to be obedient to the task and trust God with the results. That's where we land. Be obedient to the task, trust God with the results. So the proclamation of the gospel may be good news for some. It may be bad news of condemnation for others, for those who reject it. It's kind of like you can imagine if, you're, if, if somebody announces to you, okay, we're having kale salad for lunch. Now, for some people, that might be wonderful news. If you like kale salad, if you like kale, that's good news. Um, that same news might be an ab- abhorrent decree of damnation for others who don't like kale. The gospel has that effect, okay? For some, it is news of... of, of glorification news of relationship with jesus for others it is a message of condemnation so we don't determine the message but we do obediently proclaim it and trust god for the results okay we obediently proclaim it and we trust god for the results so here's where we land in this passage the mystery of christ is the solution to the enigma of the human condition Now, you might feel like you're living in mystery sometimes, asking yourself, okay, why are things the way they are? Why is God allowing me to walk through suffering? Why is God allowing me to walk through uncertainty with no way of knowing his intent? Why does God claim that he has a plan for us and yet he keeps me in the dark? I don't have the details. Why does God offer salvation and yet my loved ones continue to reject it? Why are God's ways so cloaked in mystery? See, veiled mysteries are difficult to live in, and if you're like me, you want answers to those fundamental questions. Right? You want to understand things. You want to solve problems. You want answers, unknowns, uncertainty, undiscovered truth. This stuff bothers us, right? It's uncomfortable. We want to know the future. We want to know what's around the corner. We want to be comforted by the assurance that everything is going to be okay. We don't like to live in mystery. And maybe that's where you're at, walking in a little bit of mystery right now in life, walking in the dark with these unknowns. But I want to encourage you with this. Rather than focusing on the unknowns, focus on what we do know, that God, in his grace, has a plan that involves the final and ultimate good of his people. Focus on that. So you may feel at times that you're walking alone in the dark, unable to see the way forward, unable to see what's around the corner. God's will might seem shrouded in mystery. His ways may seem unknowable, unsearchable, hidden from you. He may seem hidden from you. You may get the feeling you're stumbling down this dark path, tripping over rocks and roots, in the dark. But again, let me encourage you with this. You may not always see the way forward, but you can at least take hold of the hand of the one who does see the way forward. Don't fear the darkness of the path. Cling to the one leading you, okay? Don't fear the unknown. Cling to the God who has been made known through Jesus Christ, Don't fear the mystery. Walk confidently in the eternal purpose of God realized in Jesus Christ. In Christ, remember, the mystery has been made known. The mystery has been made known. We're going to go into a time of communion. And this is a time to to reflect on what we've seen in the Word. Um, As we celebrate communion, we celebrate, again, this mystery made known. We're publicly bearing witness to Christ. Now, if you haven't picked up the, uh, the communion elements, there are some here in the front, and you'll find them in the back as well. Um, we'll hang on to these and, and, and take the communion together. But when we take communion, we are engaging in an act of worship. Okay? Keep that in mind when you take communion. You're engaging in an act of worship. Um, when we take communion, we are encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. We're announcing the cross to ourselves and to the world around us. So communion is not something to take lightly. I want to read you what the Apostle Paul says about communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And essentially what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is he's warning us not to take communion in a hypocritical way. See, if we confess belief in Jesus Christ and yet our life, our lifestyle, our words and our actions deny Christ, then what we do when we take communion is we end up mocking the cross, mocking Jesus Christ. Paul is inviting us to examine ourselves. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ, then communion is for you. And you should take it. It's an act of worship. So let's take the communion together. We'll begin with the bread. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Jesus took the cup and said, this is the blood of the covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for what we've learned today in Scripture and that the mystery has been made known in Christ Jesus. We no longer have to walk in shadow In the unknown we know that you have a plan of redemption for your people lord we don't always understand the fullness of everything we we see around us Um, we're limited we confess that our our limitations our sin the things that sometimes blind us to you lord but we know lord that you see all things clearly and so we ask lord for the faith necessary to walk in that reality and that truth to trust you for the results, to obediently follow in the truth of the gospel and to obediently proclaim the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.